0: open your Bibles uh, to the book of 2 Timothy, uh, way back toward the back of your uh, Bible, after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and First and 2 uh, Thessalonians, you get back uh, to Timothy, uh, Paul's second letter uh, to Timothy. We're going to begin reading in verse 14 and read through verse 19. Again, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 14 in just a moment. One of the things that I have desired since before my commitment to, I guess you'd call it vocational ministry, is I wanted to be, or want to be, an encourager. And... uh, a dear friend of mine, who's with the Lord now, uh, came into Somerville. He was a banker, bank president, and he had the reputation for being the hatchet man of the company. He was as hard-boiled as you could be. I can remember as a young businessman thinking, I'm going to drag you across that desk, and I'm going to stomp you right here. And uh, so, if you're a small businessman, only you can understand Appreciate bankers in the way that small business people can. But as God changed him over the years and he died a very young death of heart disease, he became such an encourager to young business people, to uh, people in the church, and so forth. And I saw that, and that, that's what I wanted and still desire. But yet, at times, I find myself being such a critic um, because I see so much in the modern evangelical church that I think is wrong, that I think is just flimsy, not doctrinally sound, not biblical. And there are certain things I'm passionate about. Uh, this, this seems to be the season of uh, pick on dad at my house. I brought my son over and his wife a while back, cooked him a steak. And then they set on making fun of the way I pronounce certain words. I mean, I'm from Somerville, Georgia. My gosh, you know, you get over it. And uh, then yesterday, uh, we found out my son-in-law was going to coach his son in soccer. And so Katie proceeded to show them how I coached them in soccer. Uh, complete with throwing the cap on the ground and kicking it and stomping and waving my arms and hooping and hollering. The things that I get passionate about, I care. I I come by it honestly. My dad could be pretty easygoing around the house. But, man, a switch went off when we got on the job. Remember, he was a building contractor. And, I mean, you know, it was do it right. Uh, Even his hobbies, like, you know, we raised cattle. And, man, you start to nail a staple into a fence post. And, you know, hey, that, that wire's not tight enough. And on and on it goes. So I guess I come by it honestly in that I believe the truth is absolutely essential for the existence and the, and the perseverance of the Christian and, and uh, the, the, the witness and the survival of the church. And I see so much being done In the modern church to absolutely just discount foundational truth and so I thought we would go back and just look at a passage uh, written to uh, at least a young pastoral associate of the Apostle Paul and talking about the importance of Scripture and simply get it right i mentioned going down to speak to the children the other day i want it to be understandable and engaging you know at some level you do have to keep their interest but most important the fundamental issue is it the truth is is it bedrock consistent with the written testimony that god has given us from genesis to revelation if it's not, it doesn't matter how well I engaged them, how entertaining I was, even if, it, even if they remember what I said. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's not true. And So if you would read with me, if we look at this, I think, timely admonition, not just to pastors, but to the church of the living God, that we would rightly divine. This word, this sure word, this inspired and errant and infallible word given to us for our good by God Himself. Again, verse 14. Paul wrote Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent irreverent babble, for it would lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. You would pray with me. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I pray for the illuminating work of Your Spirit to help us to understand and to apply these things. They're crucial. They're important. They're necessary for our own health. They're necessary for our very survival. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain times of the year that I begin to struggle a bit with my throat. And you'll notice a lot of times I come into the sanctuary with a bottle of water. just happened to look down a moment ago and this bottle of water has on it, a future full of possibilities starts by drinking pure quality water. Um, Pretty good ad. But here's the thing. If you would know the the power of God in your life, now, would anybody here just like to say, Tim, I don't care about the power of God. I, I don't need it, and I don't want it. Then, bless your heart. But I doubt anybody I want the power of God in my life. I want to know something that transcends this fallen world. I want something that will give me a measure of hope in a world that is hopeless. I don't know how pure this water really is. But I know how pure this testimony is. And that is what we have from God to sustain our lives. Tragically, we find so many taking this word and trying to dress it up, sweeten it up, pretty it up. And again, Scripture is a roaring line. Just turn the roaring line loose and let Him do His work in our lives. Okay, let's look at this. Again, Paul. Writes to this young man Timothy, who has been left in Ephesus, a place Paul min, uh, ministered, pastored for I guess about three years, and he's concerned because even at this early age, the church is being assaulted by false teachers. Not from with from outside the church, they're inside the church, and 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 they're leading people astray, and they are a threat to the. They're a threat to the unbeliever that they would not hear the truth of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead that they wouldn't be saved. And again, those that are actually saved be so compromised that they are absolutely useless to the kingdom of God in this world. And so Paul is concerned as he writes these things. And there beginning in verse 14, he gives what I call a timeless reminder Remind them. Who's the them? Remind these faithful men that you're enlisting and entrusting with the truth, that they will know the truth. You first got to know it, and you're not going to know it unless you apply yourself to the study. I believe some of the translations even say study to show yourself approved, if, if I remember correctly. So this idea of getting the scripture right is not something that is just happenstance that you fall into if you're lucky enough. It is something that you say, I commit myself to this project. How many of us have committed ourselves to our vocations, and you should, to being excellent, to being successful? How many of us have committed ourselves to learning how to do certain hobbies, hunting or fishing or, or golf or whatever. You don't go say, yeah, nee, I'm, you know, I'm going to. And again, I, I've gone fishing with, with people, and they'll put their chair out on the dock and pull their hat down the eyes and stick a cane pole out there. It might have a, a minnow or something on it, but they just come down there to sun all day. But a fisherman gets after the fish, and yet we approach the Christian life Like, well, you know, I've got a Bible somewhere. And I'll be at church if it's convenient. And I'll apply myself if I have a crisis. So Paul says to be reminded because why? We always need to be reminded. We get lazy. We get lazy. And so it is a sobering responsibility That we are charged as the church and certainly as the leaders, the elders of the church, these reliable men, to charge them. And and Paul's so serious about it, it's kind of like taking an oath before God. Now, he begins with a negative. Don't quarrel about stuff that doesn't matter. Don't quarrel. Don't don't get caught up in things. And the hardest thing in the Christian life is discerning what you need to be engaged with, and stuff you need to just forget about it. Now, the other day, Katie told me that while she was walking around Cosby Lake, that she ran into a guy handing out gospel tracts. Oh, good. It's a Good thing. And uh, so yesterday, we go out with the grandkids to you know, see the ducks and dodge the duck poop and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, here, here, he come, here comes. This guy, and so he hands me a track and says, "Are you a Christian?" I said, "Well, yes, sir, I am. I'm, I'm actually a pastor. You know, where do you pastor?" and so et And I very quickly, and, and folks I couldn't help it. Now, I'm not going to say God told me, but but you know, at the end of the track, pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven was kind of the. I said, "You know, that's a lie." said, the Bible calls upon us to repent and believe. Hear the gospel, repent and believe. And this pastor literally said, the Bible never tells us to repent. It does not call upon us to repent. And then he went on and and I realized where this guy was coming from. Church up in Springville, I'd never heard of it before. And there was in the rabid fundamentalist movement back in the post-World War II, John R. Rice, Bob Jones, Sr., Lee Robertson, King James only. I remember having a track in our track rack at my church growing up by John R. Rice that said since repentance wasn't mentioned in the Gospel of John, repentance is not essential to salvation. Now again, we understand the idea that we're justified by God's grace through faith alone. But it's a faith that's always accompanied by or with repentance. Now, here's the decision I had to make. In, in providence of God, my sister-in-law called. I knew she wanted to talk about Dale, see how she was doing. I didn't want to play phone tag with her for the next two hours. And so I was able to say, you know, i got to take the call and, and move on. But what a tragedy. What a tragedy to have this kind of concept that, that that something that the scriptures clearly teach us about what it means to come uh, to Christ and I mean I'm not even I don't think he had a kind of an aberrant view of what sin is and, and again I didn't have time to tease, tease it all out but it, it is a difficult thing to discern when and where I need to engage in the discussion and when and where I need to move on. I'm just telling you that at at almost 60 years of age, 20 plus years in ministry, it's still a tough thing uh, to know. And so we need to, it's not always necessary to wade in with both feet. It's certainly not necessarily necessary to, to jump on every issue. And again, in so doing, sometimes you can actually ruin people. So there's a bit of a warning. But Paul moves forward. He's not saying we never have discussions. We never look at issues. We never, we never consider things that are hard to understand. Because in verse 15, he gives what is this universal and timeless exhortation. Do your best. Now, as I look at that, here's what I think of. Little Johnny can't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. And you've signed him up for Little League or midget football or basketball. And he's terrible. And you just say, do your best, which means just go out there and I'm not expecting anything. That's not what the Greek behind do your best means. It means you get in there, you suck it up, and you figure the deal out, and you make every effort possible. You exalt yourself to present yourself... Before God, because ultimately, as much as I love for you to appreciate and approve of what I say, both within the pulpit and what I do outside of this church, it is far more important that one day I will stand and I will give an account for every single word and every single thought. And I want to be able to stand before God without fear, not ashamed, and having cut the word of God straight. And I'm sure all of you heard various sermons about what it means to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul may have had some kind of analogy in mind from his secular work of making tents, of cutting fabric straight to make sails or tents or whatever it was he made. My mind immediately went, and I was sitting in my dining room this this morning and yesterday kind of putting finishing touches on this. We have a bay window in the front of the house. We had chair rail, six-inch crown mold, mold, uh, trim around the windows, baseboard, quarter round. And I began to think about the work of the carpenters with a miter saw. And they're cutting those various angles to make that room, make that trim fit together so that it looked good and it looked finished. And so that requires an immense amount of intelligence, believe it or not, to get though to stand at that saw and figure out which way do I, Mike, you know what I'm talking about? You got to swing that saw and make those 45s and those 30s and those beveled edges, you got to make them fit. You got to cut it correctly to make it a finished work that you would be proud of. And so it takes great effort to take this whole Bible and make it when you. Do a sermon, a room that it looks finished and it is consistent with everything that the Bible says. Not just taking texts out of context and twisting and you know relating to you my pet peeves, of which I have many. I got a whole bunch of things that tick me off. But to make sure that the word of God is a consistent testimony of Jesus Christ from Genesis. To Revelation. And so our charge is to rightly divide. And very simply, that means get it right. I've told you this before. But essentially, there's really one meaning to every text of Scripture. So anytime you hear somebody say, This is what it means to me. Ba, 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 because it doesn't matter what it means to you. It means what it matters what it means to God. Now, what we say sometimes is this is what it means to me. And what we mean is this is how it applies. And there are thousands of ways the Scriptures apply in our lives. Okay? You know, a Sunday school teacher should see this. and You know, this means that I better study before Sunday morning at 945 driving down the road. Or, that wouldn't be right, 845 on my way to church what I'm going to teach this morning. That start Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, or at the latest Monday morning thinking about what you're going to teach that following Sunday. And be sure you're telling the truth. And so Paul goes on to explain that, that we, verse 16, and I call it, I call it the perpetual warning because it's just always the case. The church is always in need of this word. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And I've listen. I've been guilty of this, and you know, I've said things from the pulpit. I, I wish I hadn't said that. There was no need. Trying to be cute or something. like There was really no need for that. And sometimes, you know, famous pastors say stuff, and you go. I don't know about that. There was a better way of saying certain things. May have been catchy, may have been memorable, but I hope when my ministry concluded here, the things you remember are not the cute and catchy things. I hope what you remember is the rightly divided word of truth. Okay? And so Paul tells us that we're not to get caught up in in error because. It will lead people down the trail to destruction, and he compares it to to gangrene. Now, I don't know if you've seen gangrene. I have seen. In fact, my grandfather, who was a diabetic, stubbed his toe when I was five years old. And I still remember his foot, his toe turning blue, his toenail falling off, his foot turning blue, and it running up his leg until they amputated his leg and it killed him. And I've seen it a number of times as a pastor visiting people in the hospital in which the gangrene spreads. And it'll kill you. And unbiblical doctrine is worse than physical gangrene, as bad as it is. And so, avoid that junk. And again, so much of what's popular in the church today is this whimsical kind of, you know, this is what God told me and now I'm telling you stuff. Some of the very popular teachers and preachers are well invested in that. And so Paul warns us about these names uh, too. And they were probably leaders in the church that were already taking the church down the dangerous trails of weak and false doctrine. Again, specifically, that the resurrection had already happened. And again, uh, it's hard to know exactly what they had in mind by that, but obviously it was patently false. And again, they were causing people to have trouble. They were were upsetting the faith of some. Some were unsettled and and not knowing what to think of that, and, and it causes them to be weak, and it causes them to have doubts, and it causes them to have unnecessary fears. I've I've told you this before. Within my extended family, there are those that I think have a very aberrant understanding of the reality of life in a fallen world. And evidently, they think if they had had enough faith, Dale would be healed. Evidently, they have other thoughts that are unhealthy. Uh, we had friends over the other night, and one—I've gr- said this many times—one group came in and told their son who died of a brain tumor at 10 years old, "If you had enough faith, your son would be healed." In fact, they didn't say would be; says he is healed. If you had enough faith. Now, how would you feel about that stuff? That, if, if, that is very unsettling. That is so spiritually destructive. And I'm, I've told you before, having a biblical understanding of what's going on doesn't fix it. But it's far better than the idea that because of my lack of faith, my wife is suffering. That this is what God has ordained for our lives in a fallen world. Why not us? And how many of you can say the same thing as you go through the challenges of life? And so, this rootless, foundationalist gobbledygook that has no, it only has the, the barest point of contact with the Word of God will destroy your life. And of course, Paul says this, and, and I sometimes I have to rest in this. God will sort it out. God will sort it out in the end. I'm not the sorter. I mean, there are plenty of people that stand smiling before large television and church audiences and have better hair than me and wear nice suits and all this. I don't know if they're saved or not. I have my doubts based on what they say. If the gospel they proclaim is the gospel they're basing their salvation on, they're not. But God will sort it out. I don't have to. But again, Paul's timeless admonition to the church is that it's always dangerous. The church, it's always open season on the church. There's always that from within that will devastate the church. There's always that from the outside that seeks to want to compromise the church. And the church seems ever willing to embrace any and all things. Now, one of the things I think I mentioned this Wednesday night, I don't want to discourage you. I want to encourage you to study your Bible. And many times I'll say, well, you know, that's just the straightforward meaning. That's just the simple truth of what it means. And and it's staring there you there in the face, and it's not hard. But at the same time, what? Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to understand. I And, 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 and as I say, Paul wouldn't go through this, this business of do your best. You know, labor to exhaustion to get the truth of scripture if it weren't a difficult thing but we're always going to have these continuing challenges and as you read your bible and I would encourage you again to get good study materials we're 2000 years past the close of the canon of scripture ancient world dead language translated into modern English Sometimes it's hard to know exactly what things are being referred to. Find that which is true and trustworthy. I always try to help people when they say, which Bible, which commentary, which this, which that? Because there's there's some really great materials out there, and there are probably more that they're not worth the paper they're printed on. Okay? And so let's just look. I, I, I want to just kind of touch on a few things. and reading your Bible, getting it right. You need to know who the author of, of a book is and who he was writing to and, and why. Paul wrote to young Timothy in Ephesus to be sure to guard the church, which is an ongoing concern for 2,000 years of church history. And to understand the historical context, I, I hear many people taking Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's my life verse. No. That's God's word to the people of Jerusalem that were about to be exiled into Babylon. They were going to be there for 70 years, and God says, I'm going to preserve you. Now think about that for just a minute. If if North Clay Baptist Church were exiled for 70 years, how many of us would be alive in 70 years? So, to you know, okay, I know the plans I have for you for good. Wait a minute, God, 70 years, I'll be dead. That doesn't sound so spiffy. What is he talking about? I'm ultimately going to work good by preserving the people of God so the Savior of God's people will come forth from those people. Now, is, now the New Testament kind of expands that horizon, doesn't it? God works. In all things for the good of those who love him, go those called according to his purpose. But that does not mean everything is going to work to make you happy. We've said that 3,422 times in 15 years. I counted them the other day. God does not promise, as Lynn Anderson once sang, I didn't promise you a rose garden. Go Google it. But you need to understand that. You need to understand that. And you got to understand, you know, are you reading a psalm? Are you reading an epistle? Are you reading an apocalypse? Is it a figure of speech? Jesus said, I'm the door. That doesn't mean that Gary Rush is going to be inserting him into a door frame somewhere. It's a metaphor. We don't take it literally. We always, yeah, I take the Bible literally. Really? I'm the bread of life. Jesus was literally Roman meal, whole whole wheat bread. Right? Again, you need to understand what's going on, that they're figures of speak, they're parables, they're they're symbols. Okay? They're symbols, particularly in apocalyptic reading. We've been looking at Daniel on uh, Wednesday night. We've been looking at Revelation on Tuesday morning. My goodness. Now, yeah. all kinds of symbols. They're estimates and exaggerations. Everyone. All. No one. We speak the same way. I could get very discouraged sometimes. Like I say, i told somebody this morning, never ask a pastor how his church is doing from Memorial Day to Labor Day. Just don't ask them. Because they'll look at their shoelaces and go. Okay? Okay? But I could leave here some Sunday and say no one came to church. Now what do I mean? Out of the 400 and something people on our church roll, only a small minority chose to show up. Doesn't mean literally no one came. We talk the same way, don't we? And so understand that in the Bible, that, that words have meanings and usages. If I say to you, and this is a bit, I don't mean it to be crude, it's just, I had a cruder one that somebody <laughs> said this week. I said, that's a great sermon illustration. Too bad I can't share it in a Baptist church. But if I say I'm going to the bathroom, that is a, an accepted euphemism for going to relieve yourself. But I could be going there to change a light bulb. I could be just going there to, to check the fixtures out. you follow what I'm saying? Same words, far different meanings. Okay? Same, same words, far different meanings. So we need to understand that as we read the Bible. There's some fundamental things you need to understand. That the Bible, one of the ways Luther uh, read and interpreted the Bible, I think is very helpful. Make sure you understand the distinction between law and gospel. The gospel is what Jesus gives us, which is namely himself. The law is what God demands. And if you ever think that you will stand before God on the basis of your performance of anything that God demands, even doing your best to present yourself. If I think that I'm going to stand before God on the basis of really working hard to get it right and God's going to say, out At, of boy, Tim, I will go straight to hell. I'm depending on Jesus Christ. I'm depending on the gospel. The law simply indicts me to the place that I know I need a Savior. And His name is Jesus, and He's revealed to me in the gospel. If you, let me tell you something. There are eternal consequences for mixing. Law and gospel. You keep them distinct. Old and new covenant. Much of the era that that is in the church today is they take the promises made to a theocratic, historical kingdom called Israel that God would give them. God did say, I will give you great temporal blessings. You'll have a wonderful political system. You'll have a wonderful economic system. You'll have a wonderful military. You will be successful. You will be healthy but that was to those unique people at that time, and it does not carry forward into the new covenant. So, when you go to Isaiah 53, as countless churches do, by His stripes you are healed, which means that God promises to His people temporal prosperity and healing. It's a lie. It is not rightly dividing the word of truth You are healed of your greatest malady, namely your sin. And there are churches that are filled with countless people because they think and just because, you know, I've told you before, sometimes prosperity is a curse. It really is in a number of different ways, but one of them is I'm doing well, everybody's happy, I need a little churchy church. So I go, and since I'm doing well, and God, by stripes, I'm blessed, then it's all good. And they're lulled The, the same way my parents' generation's racism and other types of prejudice and greed was ingrained in them by preachers that wanted to talk about their teenagers wanting to go to the dance on Friday night and drinking and smoking this is the same thing that they allow people that are living lives of greed and even lives that are characterized by dishonesty to be affirmed in their sin by preaching that junk and it's to their own demise spreads like gangrene we see these tremendous Buildings that house people every Sunday that are filled to the brim and they're being told that God wants you to have your best life now and all that stuff. And it spreads. It works. It really does. So, sort those things out. We have so many challenges. And I mean this, you know, I went off a couple of weeks ago on the the healing um, revival or whatever they called it down down the road here. And But it's something to think about. The Bible really doesn't tell us specifically that those things ended. Did they or did they not? Something, you need to study your Bible. Either they did or they didn't. And there's godly people on both sides. Now again, what I see on television and what I hear about is a bunch of charlatans and a bunch of con men. Okay? That are fleecing people. But something to think about. Tongues. I'm not, I don't speak in tongues. I have my views. Again, if a German shows up and you can go up and well, I don't know. You know, if you can talk German when it's appropriate. I'd say you can speak in tongues. If you go up, you know, I probably won't be too impressed. Don't know it to do much good other than who are those idiots that go to that church. But there's a lot of questions. I already mentioned temporal provision. And the ongoing problems of liberalism and subjectivism and relativism. You're not the star of every Bible story. You need to get over it. You know, I'm not going out with my five smooth stones to slay my giants. I've got the stone of faith. I've got the stone of courage. I've got the stone of integrity. I've got the, the stone of, I don't know what. But anyway, not the meaning of the text. not the meaning of the text. You know, God's not going to send his ark. You're not Noah. Okay? He might. If I had time, I'd tell you one of my favorite jokes. I don't have time. Okay. What about the moral revolution? My Jesus wouldn't condemn anybody. It's a Lie straight from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. Okay? I've told you this a number of times before. You can go back and you can Google it. In fact, you can pull up 1925 Baptist Faith Meth, 1963 Baptist Faith Meth, 2000 Baptist Faith Meth. Right there in a the column. You can compare them. 1963. Jesus is the criteria by which the Scripture should be interpreted. It was put in there to keep the pluralists from making inroads into the Southern Baptist Convention that there were other ways to heaven other than Jesus Christ. It became, and I heard it in the church growing up. That, again, this Jesus wouldn't have done this or that. I project my own sentimental biases upon Jesus, and therefore I can say he would or wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. That was changed. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal Jesus Christ as singularly, exclusively, I'm not quoting, but singularly, exclusively, the Savior of the world. Okay? And so the idea that Jesus is okay with any way you want to live, just so you like it, is a lie, and anybody that's telling you that is a liar, and it's placing your soul in peril, and you are in danger of hellfire if you continue to believe it. Okay. So, what are we to do? I had a, a T-shirt, uh, Tim, uh, Tim Forehand made up for the youth. And I don't even know if I can quote. It. Guys, help me know the truth. What was it? Know the truth. I can't remember, but anyway. The idea is know the truth, be able to speak the truth, be able to defend the truth, and you can't even begin if you don't know it, if you don't get it right. I often tell people, out of the many ways our church is flawed, including its pastor, okay? I'm just a flawed pastor. If you want to know the truth, if you want to know what the Bible says about what it speaks to, this is the right place. I, I will take a back seat to no one, to no other church. Now, if there are other things you want out of church, there are probably better places. But we will rightly divide God's word for the good of God's people and really for the good of the entire world, that there will be a gospel in the world for generations to come. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. It's a warning and an encouragement. Lord, the, the, the task of faithfulness, whether as a layperson or as a, an elder in the church, the task is often discouraging. Uh, so many times we feel like Elijah. I'm the only one. I'm it. What, what's the deal here? But, Lord, you've always had your 7,000. You've always had your remnant. And so, Lord, we, while this is a sober warning to be careful, about what we believe, what we teach, what we say, it's also an encouragement. That your truth, that your word will not return void. In fact, every person sitting here today is now accountable for these truths. They will stand and give an account for how they have responded to your word. As we do each and every time we come under the sound of your word, each and every time we open it to read it for ourselves. So Lord, I pray you bless your word to our fruit, to our flourishing as your people, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen.